0: This is Strange New Trek, a podcast about the life and times of Captain Christopher Pike. And now, your hosts. In 2017, a new Star Trek hit streaming services around the world. For the first time in over a decade, there would be new episodes of Trek playing in homes. But some Trek fans, being fragile whiny man-babies, it was met with mixed reviews and mean words. Behind the scenes, things didn't go much better for Star Trek Discovery. But at the very end of Season 1, the Starship Enterprise and Captain Christopher Pike were teased. And, for me, I couldn't wait to see where it went. I am Jeremy Vilmer, host of Strange New Trek, and joining me is my co-host and first officer, Chris Noonian Singh. What's happening, Chris? Hey,
1: hey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, before we get into this, I did want to say that there is some news. Now, we're off a little bit, but Paramount got caught with their hand in the proverbial curkey jar, so to speak. <laughs> Somebody leaked a picture of an actor and the lady playing um, Leanne Noonian Singh and all the speculation was happening on YouTube about who that character could have been. So Paramount just said, oh, yeah, that's Captain Kirk.
1: Yeah, actually, I, I didn't even know you were going to want to talk about this, but uh, I was going to bring it up anyway. You know, right now we're not able to do a super lot of speculation because we both have seen all the stuff that we're watching right now. But uh, I did want to talk about that for a minute. So I'm glad you brought it up. Oh, yeah.
0: there's <laughs> I don't think there's any way to not bring this up, you know? Yeah. I assume you have seen the pictures. Yep, I did. Now I don't know I don't know anything about the actor really. I guess he was on Vampire Diaries.
1: Yeah, I think so. I didn't ever watch that show.
0: <laughs> yeah, me either. He's Wesley somebody. So, but he's good enough to hold down a show for a while, so you know, I guess he's an okay actor. We can make that assumption. Did you notice anything about the pictures worth uh, bringing up first?
1: I do like the uniform that he's wearing.
0: <laughs> that's the one from Strange New World, so we have to assume that that's the the current starfleet uniform i did notice that he has a different pin than the enterprise crew does so like his ship assignment remember on on star trek uh, the original show different ships had different patch assignments even though they weren't supposed to yeah so a different ship would show up and instead of the the arrowhead it would be something else so if you look at uh captain kirk there i'm assuming he's a captain because it looked like he had three braids on his sleeve And if you look at Captain Kirk there, he's got a different patch on his shirt. So I'm wondering if he's going to show up as captain of the, at this time I guess it'd be the Farragut?
1: Yeah, but depending on where they're putting the timeline at, he shouldn't be a captain yet, right?
0: Uh, He's the youngest captain in Starfleet history was always the thing, if I remember right.
1: That's true, but Pike doesn't meet Kirk until Pike is a fleet admiral, I think.
0: That is the thing, though, isn't it? So, that is what they say in Menagerie.
1: So, I'm looking at this article on Trek Movie, and it looks like him and Kirk are wearing the same patch.
0: Oh, you know, this big picture, he is wearing the Enterprise patch. If you look down here, scroll down that page a little bit, and it looks like he's wearing a slightly different patch, a bulkier one down there. But, yeah, I see what you mean. I i had gotten so focused on that, seeing a different button on there, that I forgot that there are the ones of him full-on Enterprise gear.
1: So, he, here's what I'm going to do for this the same thing I have to do for Marvel movies. Whenever I see a preview or a out-of-context picture that may make me aggravated about what they're about to do, I just got to remember, Marvel Studios has a nice, long, good track record of putting out mostly good stuff. And well, from what I've seen from Paramount, at least through Discovery, because I haven't watched Picard yet, <laughs> they also have that same track record. So I'm going to hold back the, any of the negative things I might have to say about this and just see what, what happens. Cause this is season two stuff. So
0: we have a long way to wait. I know they got caught. They're up to something. Cause they had to like come out immediately and go like, ah, uh, yeah, that's a, that's captain Kirk. Uh, you know, and everybody's over there like saying, oh yeah, we think that's Matt Decker's father, Commodore Decker, Oh, we think that could be, you know, they're going down the list and Paramount didn't even wait a full day and release. Nope. That's uh, that's captain Kirk. We have captain Kirk on the show.
1: (laughs) Yeah. There was some speculation I was reading on Twitter that, uh, there might be some time travel shenanigans involved, which given some of the things that happened in future seasons of discovery, I kind of hope that's not it, but I guess we'll see.
0: Yeah. Discovery's done a lot with time travel and, Right now, Picard Season 2 is in 2024, so they're doing time travel.
1: Well, and, uh they seem to have a track record for time travel, so maybe that'll be the case.
0: And, you know, if I had to put my two cents in, I hate time travel. Only do it when you have a really, really, really strong story. That's my feelings on the matter.
1: Yeah, I actually kind of like the way Discovery did it because um, they time traveled out of that era so that, you know they would, could make room for Pike, leading up to the original series stuff. So I didn't mind it when Discovery did it.
0: Yeah, and they didn't—they didn't go back in the past and change things. They went a thousand years in the future and hung out.
1: Yeah, I still have to watch the rest of what they have on Paramount for Discovery. I haven't I haven't? I think the finale's up now for season four.
0: Yeah, I think it just ended. I'm watching Picard right now, the season two of Picard, and so far I'm with them.
1: That definitely uh, makes me want to watch it more that you have positive things to say about it.
0: Season one left me kind of unsure but the way they're the way they're headed now, I'm, I'm liking it. So as long as they keep doing things about like they are, I'm cool. And I'm not such a slave to continuity that I can't accept like little changes because look original Star Trek and Star Trek the Next Generation. Continuity really didn't mean that much if they had a better story to tell. I don't want them to ignore it, but you know, you can change things if it makes things better.
1: Yeah. I feel like you could more easily get away with it back in the day because you didn't have internet. I mean, obviously there were a bunch of rabid fans that cared about that sort of thing, but the the public at large, the casual viewer, you know, they weren't caring about that, but now that um every time any little bit of stuff comes out, I can go on the internet and read it about it immediately. So I'm going to know whether I noticed it or not, I'm going to know if they mess with something like that.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's just like when Gary, Gary Mitchell in the, the first Kirk episode brings up Kirk's grave and it says James R Kirk on it. Yeah. How did they miss that, man? Well, cause he didn't have a middle name yet. He didn't really get his middle. He got a middle initial in the show and then he got a middle name on the animated series. Well, there's lots of weird little things like that. You know, the the shooting outfit for Kirk in the command division or tactical division, whatever that is, that thing was avocado green. It was due to the lighting and the cameras that it looked gold on color TV sets. They would have still gone green with it, except when they got ready to make the animated series, they decided, well, it looked gold, so let's just go with gold.
1: Yeah, I'm going to throw a a link to this article in the show notes for this episode. If you scroll down to... The picture of kirk you can kind of see that it's not exactly yellow it does kind of look like that not quite avocado green but it's definitely not gold (laughs) yeah
0: it's a little different all right but maybe we've gotten away from the point did you have anything else to say about the kirk reveal
1: no i mean there's not a lot to say about it right now um my only thing was um uh, you know i don't i don't I think maybe once we get in the season one of Pike or of Strange New Worlds, there might be some better opportunities for speculation on what this means. But without having seen any of it, I, I couldn't even begin to speculate on what this means for their, you know, for the story.
0: Yeah, I'm going to speculate on it right now. Check this out, okay? Kirk will not meet Pike in that episode or in that series of episodes, however that's going to work. Pike will be on vacation or something. They, they won't meet, and that way they can hold that line from the, the Menagerie is true. And the real big problem will be the fact that Kirk and Spock are going to meet a descendant of Khan Noonien Singh. <laughs>
1: yeah, I guess that doesn't hurt much. Because even in the TOS, like they knew who Khan was once um, they knew the ship name.
0: Once they had a little time to do some digging around. All right. Okay, well, that's enough speculation for now, I imagine.
1: Yeah, I've been looking forward to talking about this one. You know, like I've, like I was saying, I think in our first episode, somewhere behind us now. Even though I've, I've read about all this this hate online for this show, uh, once I started watching it, it was nonstop for me after that until I ran out of stuff to watch. So now I'm watching it as it comes out, like a peasant.
0: <laughs> we have gotten spoiled by <laughs> streaming services that used to release everything on like Friday night. You know, like hey, here's ten episodes of a show. I love that. Oh,
1: yeah, there's some shows on Netflix that, when they come out, me and my wife will literally stay up all night watching the whole entire season. Oh yeah,
0: no, it's it's the <laughs> way it's a way to do it, you know <laughs> It has really changed how we watch television. So this is actually gonna be my first rewatch of the whole season two of Discovery. I hadn't seen this since twenty nineteen since it was first released. There are a lot of good things in this episode, actually. Things I forgot that were in here that I liked quite a bit.
1: Yeah, man. I obviously watched it way more recently than you. Um, my first watch-through, I think, was actually earlier this year. Yeah, probably, because when we decided to do this, I, I really went hard on catching up on some some of the newer stuff. In the last year, beginning of this year, I don't remember. But, yeah, man. This is my second watch-through, too. But, um, as I say... Uh, My initial watch through was way more recent than yours.
0: Yeah. I'm going to start with some of the basics here because we do a quick recap at the start of this episode. And we show the Enterprise. What were your first thoughts about the the redesigned Enterprise?
1: I mean, the ship just looks great, as usual. As I've said before, I was super confused on the timeline here. But we are operating after the cage. So I'm kind of wondering what the Enterprise went through unless all that battle damage is talking about the issues that they were going through at the beginning of the cage. Yeah, as far as like what the ship looked like, yeah, I mean, I'm always a fan when I see NCC-1701 up there.
0: It wasn't off-putting at all that it had a new design or it was severely updated or anything, right?
1: This episode came out in two thousand. Nineteen, So I I assume it's going to be like that. I mean, watching those Kelvin movies, you've already seen a redesigned Enterprise. So seeing it look a slightly different here wasn't a big deal after all that.
0: No, I I feel the same way. I've definitely heard these arguments that it should have looked just like it did in the 60s. I'm like, that would have been stupid. That would have looked like (laughs) crap. You know, I love that original Enterprise, the original Enterprise sets, but... I'm not watching that movie uh, 50 years later, that series.
1: Yeah, and if they decide to reboot the original series in 50 years, I bet the Enterprise won't look like it does now in any form.
0: Absolutely not.
1: (laughs) It'll still look a little different, but that's okay.
0: Yeah. You know, I kind of think, and we'll we'll get on to the episode here in a second. You know, during that period of time where there was no new Star Trek being created, A lot of fans were doing fan productions, and there were two who basically did a continuation of the original series and rebuilt the sets and the ship and cast new actors as Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Uhura. And I kind of feel like that stuff prepared us for seeing new actors take on these classic roles.
1: Yeah, um, I think what you're referring to, at least the one that I'm most familiar with, I I believe it was called um, Star Trek Continues or... I'm either thinking of a band or a show, Five-Year Mission. I think that's the band.
0: Five-Year Mission's a band, yeah. Star Trek Continues is one of the shows. I've actually interviewed quite a few people from that, from production and the actors. And then the first one I found was Star Trek New Voyages, I believe. And James Colley was an Elvis impersonator who cast himself as Kirk in the first.
1: <laughs> it's still kind of interesting. Makes sense that there would be an Elvis impressing
0: there. Hey, you know, it's an entertainer's an entertainer, man, you know? <laughs> All right. So, we're going to dive in and we're going to use Memory Alpha's uh, act breakdown here to kind of follow along and, and discuss as we go, okay? Yeah. All right. So, we start the episode and they're the command crew following on the end of the first season. They're headed to the transporter room and... Saru notices and remarks on the fact that Michael Burnham's endocrine system is running very high and they have to assume that it's her anxiety about seeing her brother Spock. Cause again, Saru, as he starts the show, which I thought was actually a brilliant thing. Well, he was a coward <laughs> from a race of cowards, <laughs> which I thought was like a great idea for a character, but she kind of plays it off on, Oh no, 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 something else is bothering me. And Saru is like, yeah, okay. Something else. They talk about their siblings, and then they head into the transporter room, and she's expecting because it's supposed to be Pike, his science officer, and his engineer.
1: So, obviously, when they say Pike's coming on with his science officer, you assume it's Spock. And I, I like the... I like the way that they brought, um, it ended up being Lieutenant Connolly. I like the way that I brought him in because the camera is, uh, directed behind his head. So that like the first thing that you see when he transports in is his ear.
0: Yes. That was actually a great shot.
1: <laughs> so, you know, right off the bat, Nope, we're not dealing with Spock here.
0: Cause they kind of, they play with it. They shoot the shirt and then a fuzzy back of the head. And then they settle on that ear, like you're saying. And then, you know, you know.
1: Yep, not Spock.
0: (laughs) Yep. So, uh, as Pike introduces himself and his crew, he tells Saru that he's taking over the ship. Saru asks, you know, why, and he lists the three reasons that a um, captain would be put on and take over a ship. Starfleet Regulation 19, Section C, bud. That's it. (laughs) That's the one. (laughs) So, it was an imminent threat to the Federation, danger to the uh, Federation citizens, or no officers of available rank are available and he asked which one it is and pike says yeah it's it's all three
1: <laughs> yeah because I, I i'm pretty sure saru is just um he's, he's not a commander a he's a commander yeah so i guess um after Lorca, the, the Lorca's shenanigans saru is the commander acting captain and here is pike to take over the chair as it
0: were yes th- that is it indeed they're making their way up to the bridge. Pike explains that over the last 24 hours, Federation sensors have detected seven red bursts spread out across more than 30,000 light years, appearing in perfect synchronization just long enough to be scanned and then vanish, except one. Saru points out the perfect synchronization would rule out natural causes.
1: Yeah, especially spread over 30,000 light years.
0: Yeah, which I, I have some questions timing wise, like you know, would we even be able to see eight things or seven things lighting up over that span at the same time?
1: Well, throughout the series, especially in the later seasons of Discovery, they have, they have, I guess, what you could call like drones out there. Maybe I don't know what I forget what they exactly call them, but there are like stationary things all over the galaxy that
0: do scans. Yeah, kind of like deep space telescopes or something.
1: So it could be something like that is what's picking up all this stuff.
0: Yeah, uh, that could very well be. Maybe I'm maybe I'm picking nits again. <laughs> all right. So Connolly adds that whatever the Enterprise tried to oh that was the thing um, I believe it was the Enterprise trying to scan part of it is what blew it blew the Enterprise out. Whatever the uh, Connolly adds that whenever the Enterprise tried to scan the burst, the computer went haywire, and then Burnham comparing it to a compass at the North Pole. Upon learning her identity, Pike remarks that he said you were smart, and they had someone in common. Berman admits that she had expected to see Spock when Pike beamed aboard. Asura wonders if the phenomenon is a temporal anatomy or a black hole, both of which cause similar distortions. Connolly replies that neither fit the scale, the single burst stabilized long enough to have its coordinates plotted, and Pike had ordered the Enterprise to intercept when it suffered its shipwide system failure. This is what made him move to the Discovery and get the Enterprise towed back to space. So, the Enterprise's damage all became because of these uh, signals.
1: Yeah, so my initial statement about it was incorrect. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: But, you know, I have noticed that when you start trying to remember how things fit together, that you often condense things. I've seen several YouTube videos this week that say Kirk took over the Enterprise because Pike was injured in a training accident. And actually, the two things weren't at the same time. <laughs> okay. So Pike has a control transferred to him to do it. They have to do some DNA scanning, which was like some new piece of tech that never existed in the past. Um, <laughs> he explains to the crew that he knows about Lorca. He understands what Lorca did and that he's not like Lorca. He explains the mission. The reasons he moved to discovery is because the Federation is not willing to wait to see if it's a friendly message or, an, or a <laughs> malicious message. And then he orders Detmer to plot the coordinates of the uh, remaining signal.
1: Yeah, see, we've brought up this scene before. Uh, I feel like when we were talking about the cage, because his uh, Starfleet record popped up on the screen, and he, you know, points out the the F in astrophysics. And again, this is just Pike showing that maybe he's not perfect. So this does happen after the cage, and you have to assume. You know, maybe that whole encounter with the Talosians maybe gave him some some pep back in his step for Starfleet, because he's uh not as um ready to quit as he was during the cage.
0: Right. He's a little <laughs> less shouty too, a little less angry, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. Let me jump over to engineering. Uh, Paul Stamets uh, replays hollow messages from his deceased partner, Dr. Hugh Culver. When he's approached by Tilly who is overseeing the removal of the spore Drive of equipment and converting the engine room back to the standard. Stamets reveals to Tilly that after the Paris Peace Summit, at the end of the Klingon War, he accepted a permanent teaching position at the Vulcan Science Academy. He compares his ordeal during the war to a prima donna in, whoa, a Cassilian opera? Who trains her whole life for a single performance before committing suicide and admits that he sees Kolber everywhere he looks aboard Discovery. Starfleet has accepted Sam's transfer, albeit postponed due to Pike's mission, Till he tries to uh, convince him to stay.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, again, say what you will about Discovery and all the issues with it, but the characters in this show are, are what make me uh, keep watching, especially in these early seasons. The focus shifts a bit in the newer seasons, but especially these first two seasons though i really came to like a lot of these characters paul stamets and tilly both um some of my favorite characters so yeah when he's sitting there looking at that message from colber man you know because at the at the end of season one that's that's when that's when hugh dies and yeah man it was some emotional stuff for me (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, it's I mean, you know, anybody's partner having their next snaps is sad. And then they did. They well cuz you know, they're formatting this show more like a prestige television character-driven drama than they are sci-fi action, you know, like 90% of the time.
1: You know what I was thinking about that tonight while I was watching this cuz it, it didn't really run through my head so much um uh, my first time through, but seeing the way this show is is made now, I'm I'm just kind of like I don't know if they're going to be able to get too many seasons out of this because, I mean, how do you keep ratcheting this drama up all the time? You, you really can't without it being dumb. But th- those first two seasons are probably still uh, my favorite seasons of this show so far. But um, in any case, yeah, we, we're we're here right here. The sport drives down because of all the stuff that happened in, in season one and Tilly's trying to convince him to stay. Basically tells him that she secured him some space and kicked some other people out. <laughs> and he just basically says, yeah, I don't want that. Um, Just put all my stuff in storage. I'm leaving.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. There, There's a lot going on there. And you know, you're right. I like, I like both these characters quite a bit. Tilly and Stamets. I find to be interesting, fun characters. And I had a little bit of an issue. And I think probably the entire viewing audience that isn't just like a bunch of homophobes. With, we were right back to bury your gays. You had a gay couple, and of course, one of them gets murdered within, you know, three episodes or whatever.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. I don't know. I had originally decided I wasn't going to mention any of this stuff, but a big problem people had with it was the fact that they were gay. But to me, they didn't throw that in your face all the time. It was just a relationship by two crew people. I didn't have any issue at all with any of that. It it just was portrayed like a normal, average relationship between two crewmates, and one of them died, and the other one is looking to move on.
0: Yeah, and that's I mean that's just a a relationship. It, you know, I I wouldn't say that any of the rest of it factors in because first off, it's not like you got to watch them like going at it all the time, and their only their only attributes weren't that they were gay. We're talking about an engineer and a doctor, so two accomplished people. You know, I could really care less if they're a queer couple or a straight couple at that point. I'll tell you what is weird, though. It is for the first time, and, you know, we can we can probably talk about this a little later. Traditionally on Star Trek, everybody is single. You you have Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Picard. Uh eh, Riker, I guess, was a little bit different, because they did kind of marry him up later.
1: Yeah, but that was with Troy, though, right? Yeah. And so... The same thing, though. Their relationship happened aboard the, the ship.
0: So, yeah, I'm used to, you know, the people on Star Trek, you know, especially in the original series, but even into Next Gen, they're single. They have their careers, and that's what they're focused on, not another relationship.
1: Well, I mean, to be fair, they're on five-year missions. So it's not like you expect your partner to wait for you for five years.
0: No. Well, you know, it's funny, and, you know, this is getting way off in the weeds. I used to read a lot of the novels when I was a teenager, And in a lot of those, they would explain a marriage as a five-year contract that either could be renewed or not. (laughs) (laughs) What's up with five
1: years in in Star Trek?
0: They're half metric, half imperial standard. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Burnham's in her quarters reading Adventures in Wonderland, kind of flashing back to her and Spock's uh, human mother. Sarek comes in to say that he's going to be returning to Vulcan when the ship drops out of warp and that the Vulcan High Command is assembling an expedition to investigate the signals the Enterprise detected. He has also been in contact with High Chancellor Lorel, who denies Klingons are involved. She asks Sarek why he thinks Spock did not come aboard. Sarek replies that perhaps Spock is devoting his time to repairing the Enterprise. Burnham then asked what Sarek expected Spock to learn from her when he brought her into his household. Sarek believes that Burnham would have taught him empathy, needed to interact with humans, but he doesn't believe that Spock ever really accepted Burnham. And then Burnham says he may have for a time, and then he kind of, well, they kind of both let it go at that. So, you know, kind of hinting, there's that thing again, how do you ratchet up further? Because, I mean, they're already pushing for a kind of a sibling blowout here that they're going to be hinting at for a while. And if I remember right, I probably should have checked on this before I said it. There's a period where Spock didn't talk to Sarek for like 25 years or something. And I think this would have fallen during part of that before the the episode journey at Babel.
1: I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was sitting here trying to think about it, but I, I can't.
0: Yeah. Like I said, I probably should have looked that up before I stuck my foot in my mouth, but you know, The discovery drops out of warp in the middle of a massive debris field, and a signal appears to have vanished. A large chunk of debris misses the ship by only 700 meters. The point of near impact was at the exact coordinates of the signal. Saru and Berman indicate that the object is an interstellar asteroid traveling at 5,000 kilometers per hour, and that it has an atmosphere clouding sensors with hypercharged particles. Detmer reports that the ship is caught in a fluctuating gravity well. Burnham suggests using Discovery's telescopic cameras used for hull repairs to scan the surface. Dammer tries to keep up with the asteroid. Discovery bounces off its gravity while well, causing its trajectory to change into a collision course with a pulsar, which will incinerate the rock within five hours. Burnham then reports that there is a Starfleet ship crash-landed on the surface... Saru, with his superior vision, is able to read the registry's number. NCC 815, the USS Hiawatha, a medical frigate, believed lost to the Klingons 10 months earlier. Pike then orders a landing party.
1: Now, doesn't he make a comment to his uh, engineer about a red shirt
0: I think it's a little bit after this is implied to be. It's when they're going to get into the pods that they're taking. He tells her to get her like into her red shirt uniform or something.
1: So like, uh, I remember the first time I watched that, I was like, oh, so she's about to die. Cool. Cool. Cool.
0: Yeah. <laughs> they definitely hung a lampshade on that one. <laughs> on their way to the hangar, Tilly explains that the sensors and engineering picked up mycelial. I hate that word. <laughs> An engineering picked up mycelial activity that they had not seen since they found the tardigrade on the USS Glenn and asked Burnham to recover a sample of the asteroid. Pike, Burnham, Non, and Connolly take the ship's landing pods, which are designed for high gravity situations, into the debris field. From the bridge, Detton reports that the gravimetric pressure on the rock inflates the debris to the point of explosion. The remark triggers Saru's threat ganglia. The magnetic distortion interfere with the landing pods' autopilots, forcing them to resort to manual control. Connolly flies ahead of them, despite Burnham's (laughs) protest that his field of flight is too wide, (laughs) and refuses Pike's orders to fall back just as a piece of debris smashes into his pod, killing him.
1: Oh, yeah, he is uh, talking so much smack to Burnham right here. (laughs) Yeah,
0: he really, really is. (laughs)
1: I mean, I, I I didn't wish for him to die, but like just the amount of shade he was throwing and just the the, the ego coming off of him, I kind of figured it was coming.
0: You know, he kind of reminds me of like the one or two characters on a Friday the thirteenth movie who were there so you'll root for them to die. No, I mean he's well, not as he's not as he bad. Wasn't that bad. <laughs> he's not as bad, but that's what that was kind of <laughs> the direction they were headed with him. Also, I think he was there to subvert the red shirt. Because now we're expecting uh, Non to die, and they kill the blue shirt instead. <laughs> That's fair. The debris damages Pike's pod, and his auto ejection system fails. Burnham convinces Pike to let her use her own ejection system to stop Pike's free fall. Just before impacting with the asteroid, Detmer remotely activates Burnham's thruster pack. Saru anxiously calls for a report. Burnham reports that they have touched down safely. Relieved, Saru's ganglia retract as he sinks into the captain's chair. Pike, Burnham, and Non investigate the wreckage of the Hiawatha when they are met with a trio of customized probes made from salvaged Starfleet technology.
1: Yeah, man, and this introduces one of my favorite characters on the show, Commander Jet Reno.
0: Yeah, uh, sh- okay, so the, the comedian slash actress uh, Tig Notaro is great, and this is a great character they have her playing
1: yeah she doesn't come on like every episode but um she's definitely even still reoccurring i believe even in the season four but yeah whenever she's on the screen i just like the the dry sarcastic humor that she she has it's so
0: great i remember when john stewart was getting ready to leave the um the daily show she was one of the names that was that was put out there as a possible replacement The other thing I like about this character has a very, very, like, old-school sci-fi name. Jet Reno. You can see that in, like, a 1930s serial, you know?
1: I mean, they could have just used the regular name, Tig Nataro.
0: Yeah, that's that's pretty futuristic, too. That seems
1: like a futuristic name. Uh, Jet Reno just reminds me of Janet Reno, which, uh, who wants to remember
0: that? Uh, nobody in Waco, I can tell you that much. <laughs> not a one. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Too soon? Perhaps I shouldn't laugh at that. <laughs> the sickbay, they enter the, sickbay, uh, they find the voice belongs to the ship's chief engineer, Commander Jet Reno, who is working to stabilize members of the crew, most of whom are in stasis. She remarks that she had decided not to vaporize the landing party when she saw their Starfleet insignia. Having been expecting someone with a Bat'leth, Pike and Burnham inform her that the war is over. Reno explains that they had been en route to Starbase 36 when they were attacked, and that most of the war wounded were evacuated in escape pods before the crash. She stayed behind to keep the critical cases alive when... I'm sure I'm supposed to be saying Non here, but they spelled it wrong. When Non points out that she was an engineer, not a surgeon, she replies, the body's just a machine.
1: Yeah, she's got a bunch of crazy stuff happening here. Organs outside of people's bodies—uh, organ—you know. <laughs> just an interesting situation they find themselves in.
0: She does look like she's treating people like cars,
1: <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a little bit. I mean, she's not wrong though. At some level, the body is just a machine.
0: No, well, the body is a machine. I mean, it's you know, it's just uh, hydraulics and electric and electrical signals. When you look at it, you know. <laughs> Burnham restores power to the Hiawatha's transporter room and has pattern enhancers set up to strengthen the signal, allowing the Discovery to beam out the survivors six at a time. Forced to keep the shields down to transport the survivors, Saru orders evasive maneuvers even as the ship takes impact from the debris. As Pike, Nan, Reno, and the last survivors prepare to beam out, the transporter loses power. Burnham is able to reroute, but is knocked aside by an explosion just as the others beam out. Forced to navigate through the exploding vessel, Burnham returns to the outside just as she is knocked out by a flying piece of debris. So, I don't really have a problem with this show overall, but I think its constant need to create higher and higher and higher stakes put it in a bad position sometimes.
1: Oh, for sure. And that is a reoccurring theme with this show. That's why I said even early on in our episodes, like, There's a lot of things that you could say about this show without resorting to...
0: Everybody cries so much.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot you could say about this show without resorting to nonsense like that. Because ultimately, this show, I mean, all of them really, are about people in extraordinary situations... And the fact that this is the first time that that's really been a thing that you see on screen with the crying and the emotions and all that is actually pretty damn surprising considering all the stuff that they go through all the time.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. No, it's... (laughs) (laughs) Look, you remember that episode of The Next Generation where Picard is stuck in that elevator with uh, a bunch of little kids? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Super uncomfortable for that guy. If I was Picard, I would have been crying. Get me out of here. I don't like children. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you can't blame a guy for that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but this this show definitely does show that a lot more. It 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 shows the emotions of the crew a lot more than other previous ones have.
0: Oh sure, and it's and again that's because they're going for like prestige storytelling or more emotional interplay between characters. It's not just you know three swinging decks beaming down to a planet and punching stuff, you know. <laughs>
1: Which actually makes me wonder exactly how Strange New Worlds is going to be, because that's supposed to go back to the Planet of the Week format, which uh, I think would be a welcome distinction between Discovery and It.
0: Oh, I agree. You You know, a handful of years back, I used to really enjoy the shows that were putting in an effort, you know, doing the shorter seasons, but more consistent story arc a lot more continuity between episodes, you know, or, or a one story over the whole season. But one of the things I have noticed that I can still throw on an episode of Star Trek or the next generation, and it doesn't matter where it's from in the series. Anybody could watch that episode. And we're kind of past that now to the point where the idea of, uh, episodics, you know, a planet of the week, you know, 45 minute story is kind of novel now.
1: Well, I cannot imagine that there will not be some larger arc that they're dealing with, um, whether it be character development or just an overarching storyline. I kind of want to compare it to Battlestar, but I don't think I can make that comparison because that's, that's still a show where there's a handful of episodes you could watch on their own, but if you watched it too out of sync, it would be an issue.
0: No, and they they said they're going to have character arcs and overreaching points, and some things are going to be left in there. But, you know, Next Gen had that to a certain degree.
1: Yeah, but like you said, though, the arcs were so... I don't want to say not important, because they obviously were, but, like, if you watched an episode from Season 1 and then watched an episode from Season 6, I can't imagine it's going to feel super, super different. Like, I do not I don't feel like you would... Imagine that you have missed much, just because even when they did have those those character arcs, at the end of the day, they it seemed like they didn't matter a whole lot.
0: No, overall they wouldn't. And anytime they would they would bring it back up, they'd be like, "As you know, Worf, your wife was killed by." <laughs> you know, they had a lot of "as you know" speak in that show. You know, catching you back up to your own life's events.
1: So it'll be interesting to see how they do a new take on the planet of the week format, I guess is what I'm interested most
0: in seeing. Yeah, no, I think that'll be interesting to see how they kind of tie all that together. Cause I, I don't
1: think it'll be as episodic as like the original series. And like you even said the next generation to a lesser extent, I don't, I don't think it'll be, I don't think it'll be like that, but I don't think it'll be like discovery where every episode is part of that story, driving it forward every time.
0: No, and you know, a, a part of that too is that Star Trek was, the original Star Trek was meant to be sold into syndication. That was kind of uh, uh, Desilu's like design that they were trying to do was pump out stuff that they could sell into syndication after four or five years that would make them money forever. So it was designed with syndicated storytelling in mind, even to the point where like, I believe O'Reilly was killed in a season three episode and yet he was back in the next episode. And then, of course, Next Generation was designed for syndication, period. It was designed for first-run syndication and to maintain in syndication after that point.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think as you get later, like you get deeper into the Next Generation, maybe the arcs do tend to matter more. But at least in those early seasons, it really doesn't matter how you watch them.
0: No, it really doesn't. And honestly, you can put on an episode from season as long as it's not a two-parter. You can put on an episode from season three or six or five. It doesn't matter. You can you can get in and watch, which I think you know is kind of novel nowadays. Because you know when I want to put something on and I just need background noise, I'm not going to go to a ten-episode mega arc from a TV show.
1: Yeah, for me, mine is, um, you know, we talked about this before, but like stuff like Superstore or The Office or Parks and Rec, something like that where, I mean, to be fair, there are character arcs in The Office, but it doesn't really matter where I watch it. I've watched it so much. (laughs)
0: Oh yeah, you know, one of my favorite shows is a a half-hour comedy out of Canada called Corner Gas that was specifically written so you could watch it in any order. Even though there were little character bits that we picked back up here and there, but it was really meant just like it doesn't matter, you just watch it in whatever order you want. Let's go ahead and figure out where we are in Act 4. We're moving into Act 4 now. Burnham regains consciousness, a piece of superheated shrapnel stuck in her leg. As she looks up, she sees an angelic figure in the flames. The wasp.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's what I kept thinking every time the the angels kept coming. I was like, man, that that just looks like the wasp.
0: It it has a very similar style. You know, it also has like the... um, the wings and stuff remind me of like Bubblegum Crisis and like uh, '90s manga, you know. <laughs> then, after a moment, the figures were replaced by Pike, who came back to rescue Burnham, beaming back to Discovery. Burnham grabs onto a sample from the asteroid, but the rock fails to transport with her. And anxious Tilly visits Burnham in bay where Burnham explains, man, they sure use her name a lot the way they write this. <clears throat> where Burnham explains <laughs> what happened with the rock, which means that now that's the movie with Sean Connery, I believe, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, good movie. Yeah, it was it was. Did you know that's actually supposed to be a a, a secret uh, James Bond movie? Well, I mean, Sean Connery's up in there, so well. Now that's the idea is that he's playing an unnamed Bond in that movie, <laughs> which means the asteroid is not entirely made up of baryonic matter, which could explain the gravitational energy. Burnham shows Tilly a projection of the closest pieces of debris they could capture. Tilly sets up a gravity simulator in the in the shuttle bay. With his mission complete, Pike turns the bridge over to Saru, who orders Detmer to keep the asteroid fragment in Discovery's wake. The fragment impacts hard inside the bay, but is captured by the gravity simulator, at which point Saru orders the ship to withdraw. Oh, in the ready room, Pike, now wearing a Starfleet uniform similar to that of the Discovery crew, meets with Burnham, explaining that the Enterprise will require more repairs, and that he and Saru have joint custody of the ship. As they walk through the decks, Burnham admits that she is the reason she and Spock do not speak, and says that she would like to go over to the Enterprise to see him. Pike lets her know that he's not over there. He's on a a leave. Now, also, they get into a thing here that the five-year mission the Enterprise was on actually had them outside the area of the Klingon War, and everybody on the ships kind of got survivor's guilt
1: yeah even pike um what you see early in the episode when he wants to take a landing party down and pretty much everybody's like nah bro you can't do that we about to die if you do that and he's like hey man i set out from the war i ain't finna leave nobody behind like i'm gonna i gotta do something because uh we've been out here on our deep space mission and weren't able to contribute to the war effort so i i need to i need to do something
0: yeah and I think that's kind of interesting to give him survivor's guilt, especially in view of the cage where he, you know, all those, the, all those members of his crew were injured or killed. And then he leaves Vena behind when he goes, it's kind of an interesting thing to kind of keep that as part of the focus of the character.
1: Yeah. I thought it since watching the cage in such close proximity to this, I don't want to say it doesn't make sense, but I don't know. I I kind of feel like he should have mentioned that too.
0: Yeah. Now, is that one of those maybe it's so personal it doesn't really come up kind of things? Or is it just that they need to keep it a secret for later in the season?
1: They don't even really mention it later in the season, though. There's a couple scenes that flash to like the menagerie, but I guess when you see him in the cage, he's talking privately to his... uh doctor slash bartender. So maybe you're right. Maybe it's maybe it's a little personal still. Because um, we know this happens after the cage. And since the cage didn't have necessarily a year attached to it or a star date, I'm still not sure like how much time has passed between the cage and now. Obviously, later in the season, we get some more ideas about that. But I don't think it necessarily specifically says like how much time has elapsed.
0: No, for some reason I have it in my head that it's in the three to five year range, but that, that may just be me putting a a time range on it, you know? (laughs) So I'm not sure if that's accurate or not.
1: Yeah. Hopefully the new show will fill in some of those blanks for us.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, I imagine, I imagine it will. Pike remarks to Spock. Okay. They kind of say that even Spock was kind of not adjusting well to the idea of the survivor's guilt of having sat the five years out. Says that he went ahead, uh, Spock requested a leave of absence, and he gave it to him. Burnham then heads over to the Enterprise. Actually, they do kind of a cool cut here, where she's standing in front of a door on the Discovery, and they literally just jump cut to her standing in front of Spock's door on the Enterprise.
1: Yeah, that was super jarring for me.
0: Yeah, I thought it was, because it, it made me pay attention to what was going on, and go like, wait, wait, what just happened? And then you realize where she is.
1: Yeah, even tonight because I, I watched a little bit before we started recording. Even this time through, it was like, what's going on? What?
0: <laughs> Wait, who are these people? What just happened? Yeah. <laughs> no, it does kind of catch you off. Um, so the long and the short of this point is that she goes into Spock's room, which, while different, it did seem very much like his room on the original Star Trek. It had a lot of the same little tchotchkes and things hanging around. She finds some of his personal logs where he talks about nightmares he had and visions that he was having and that now he's having visions of those red splotches that the Enterprise saw and those were in his nightmares when he was a kid. So now we've got our, our mystery of the of the uh, season is getting set up. And so now we got to wonder, where is Spock? Are we going to see him this season? They wouldn't dare recast Leonard Nimoy, would they? <laughs> so far, I I'm with it. I, I this I I kind of left season one kind of meh. I mean, I was gonna watch it again. It was still new Star Trek. Oh man,
1: how are you even saying that right now? The whole of season one was phenomenal. It took me an episode or two to really feel like that, but especially once they made it to the Mirror Universe, I was like, okay. Oh, the
0: Mirror Universe stuff was great.
1: Yeah, I'm 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 on
0: board for this. I just I didn't like the. The Federation is totally cool with planting nuclear bombs in Kronos. <laughs> I just that I'm like, what? Well, that doesn't that doesn't seem like the Federation I know.
1: Well, the, I mean, the Kelvin Universe kind of at least suggested something similar.
0: Well, yeah, but at least that was the bad. See, he was the admiral, and he was a bad guy. He was a admiral. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot,
1: admiral Marcus.
0: That's right. <laughs> One of the other things I wanted to bring up about this episode is, you know, Star Trek has a tradition that like when a Commodore or an Admiral or another captain come on the ship and take command, they're usually up to no good. There's usually they're crazy or something. something's off, right? And they got to get control of the ship back from this guy. And then Pike comes on and he's, he's kind of like, hey, you guys want milk and cookies and stuff? <laughs> let's go save some people's lives and uh you know, then we'll come back here and maybe watch a movie or something. What do you what do you think?
1: <laughs> yeah, it did feel a little bit like that for sure.
0: Yeah, no, I thought that was kind of cool. I don't know if it was intentional, but to me it seemed like an intentional thing to do where it's you know the new guy coming on, especially after Lorca. He's a cool guy. We're all gonna like him, you know. He, he's kind of like Captain Dad over here.
1: That pretty much sums up this episode, but um let's talk about Pike for a second. Sure. When you compare Captain Pike here to Jeffrey Hunter, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, so at this point right here, they have played Pike for about the exact same length of time. They kind of have their own takes on him, but I get a sense that Anson Mount was trying to, if not be 100% accurate, he was trying to be authentic to the character as played by Jeffrey Hunter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. He's, uh, he wasn't super brooding in this one though.
0: No, they do need, I, th- I think they need to refocus that a little bit because even if he was less brooding, he was very brooding in the cage.
1: Yeah, for sure. Speaking of the cage, when they were in the ready room, when he's talking to Burnham in the ready room, he's like, Hey man, how come there are no chairs here? <laughs> and then, um, you know, he picks up that fortune from a fortune cookie that Lorca had, and there was something about, you know, a cage and I forget exactly what it said, but it, it you know, it was like, it, it mentioned a cage. I was like, ah, oh, I see what they did there.
0: <laughs> nice yeah. Touch. Oh, I, I wish I could remember. Not every cage is a prison and not every, not every loss is eternal.
1: Yeah, something along those lines, but yeah, I thought that was a nice touch. But um, for me, I think I've said this before, but he... The actor that plays Pike in this seems to have jumbled Kirk. Well, I, I, I shouldn't say just Kirk. I should say William Shatner's Kirk with a little bit of Jeffrey Hunter's Pike with a little bit of Greenwood's Pike, too. So you, you kind of get a smash-up of those three characters, in my opinion, but you're right, they, they probably should have focused a little more on the brooding part of Pike, especially since they had just had to sit out of the war, and they're having a bit of survivor's guilt, like you said. I don't think they played that up enough, at least in this episode.
0: No, in and, and overall, they're definitely they're definitely going for his you treat everybody else more like a human being than yourself. You know, he he's being the accepting, gregarious and outgoing captain, which if you had a few moments of him, you know, like sitting in a dark room by himself or maybe he had to kind of pull himself together to go and do things, you know, that might have been you know, that might have been some character I don't know, that might have been something we could have recognized more of the Jeffrey Hunter in.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think I would like to have seen something like that. There's flashes of it, I think, in this season, but it's definitely not as pronounced as I would have liked it to been. But, you know, at the same time, he's not Jeffrey Hunter, and this is not that same Pike. I mean, it is, but it's not.
0: Yeah, and he, I'm cool with him interpreting the character his own way, too.
1: Yeah, for sure. I guess that's what I was getting
0: at. I did like there was that moment where he kind of bit uh, Burnham's head off. When she was like, no, we can blah, blah, blah. And he kind of bit her head off and then goes, look, I don't mind dissent, but it needs to come with solutions. I thought that was a great piece, a great piece of characterization to put in there.
1: Yeah. And, and it, it was little things like that <laughs> when he first comes aboard the ship and they're in the, um, they're in the lift. I can't remember exactly what was said, but he kind of busts her chops there too, like in a mocking way.
0: Oh, okay. I don't think I paid enough attention to that. Cause I was waiting to see if I remembered it right or wrong. If Linus sneezed on somebody or if that was the, the, he Orville. Did, yeah. yeah, he did. <laughs> and I was so distracted by like, wait, wait, was that an episode of the Orville or was that? The- oh, you don't know. No, he just slotted <laughs> all over that dude. <laughs> oh, that one, that one kind of caught me off guard a little bit.
1: Yeah. I'd say overall, I enjoy Pike and discovery. I enjoyed this introduction of him. I guess we'll find out later in the season more of a reason why he's there. But yeah, I enjoy this version of Pike for sure. Even with all the nits I had to pick about him.
0: Yeah, I probably could get a little bit nitpickier or picky-nittier with the character. Except I was so excited by the idea of having a season of Captain Pike. You know, something we never got to see even if it was a new interpretation, even if it was a whole new direction. Just the idea of of this captain, you know, we get to see what he does for a whole season of being a captain of a ship. So I, I was perfectly okay with that. Chris, my last question I really got on this one. What did you think of the Enterprise uniform design?
1: Yeah, I'm not going to lie, man. I like the this, the regular Discovery uniforms better. Even looking at some of the first looks of the uniforms they will be wearing on the Strange New Worlds, with the exception of, like, the metallic colorations for all the divisions, I definitely like the the regular Discovery uniforms better. Obviously, there's some nostalgic factor coming in because you see all the colors you're used to seeing on uniforms, and we get back Command Gold and all that stuff, but... I don't know. It's something about the way they're cut that I don't really care for too much. Maybe um, I actually like the the um, Strange New Trek uniforms worse.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I, see, I like them better, but they are very reminiscent. They're, they're like somewhere, I don't know, somewhere between pajamas and uh, a Star Trek uniform. And they, uh, there's something weird about the Strange New Worlds uniforms, but I kind of like them.
1: I think it's the way the front is, is put together. It's especially apparent on the females because where some of the um, pieces of the shirt come together, it definitely accentuates breasts mm-hmm, <laughs> in a weird way. And the men's tops are very similar. I don't know; they're just tailored weird. I think they're just put together weird. But you're right. That when I first saw them, there there was definitely something off about them. But the more I thought about it, that that's what I think it is for me. Just the fall of that
0: the that shape and everything.
1: Yeah, it, it, it they just got some weird stuff going on. I have to think that they'll tighten it up as the seasons move on.
0: You know, there's also, the, I, you know, I bet you I'm, we're talking about the same lines here. Because there's that line that goes like kind of on the chest, but it's it's not a 90 degree line to the, the lines running up the body. They're kind of like 110 degrees. I and mean, it kind of looks like they maybe like hit the nipple and then kind of come out at that angle from there. Yeah, yeah. It just looks really weird. So, here's the thing. Go look at all the Marvel designed uniforms as well. They all have that line too.
1: Huh? Yeah, because I guess um I never I know you shared an article about it on the Facebook group that we have for the show and I was just looking at those uniforms on I think mannequins. So, it could be that when I see them on a person, maybe it'll clear a lot of that stuff up for me, but seeing them on a mar- uh, on a mannequin just uh they look weird.
0: Yeah, and that can sit weird because you know you see something just on a hanger; it never looks quite right. Well, I'm hoping they look good because <clears throat> I like I like the direction they went with it. I don't know the Discovery uniforms just look too damn stiff to me. I didn't get that
1: that feeling. That to me, they they are more utilitarian. Like, um, it seems like you'd be able to move more freely in them. They look comfortable. Again, the only thing that I didn't like is them using a metallic color to denote division instead of like a, you know, the colors we're used to.
0: You know, the one thing I don't like that's been done, it's still being done, has been done since the Kelvinverse started, is the repeating patterns in the fabric. (laughs) I just kind of, I mean, I get that everything's high def now and you need a little more texture and a little more visual interest. But constantly seeing the Delta or the Command Star or the Engineering E or the the planets from the sciences division. <laughs> they're off-putting and they're distracting in a way.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Discovery uniforms don't have that. They
0: do on the ribs. Do they? Yeah, they do on the ribs.
1: Because I know on the Strange New Worlds uniform, they start on the shoulder um, and go down the arm. I personally don't mind that. I like the look of it. But I could see where you might dislike that for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, just for me, they're distracting. Because, like, you put that uniform on screen, and I'm like, oh, there's the command star. And there it is again and again and again and again and again and again. For me, it just kind of, it, it catches my eye too much and takes me out of the scene. It makes me, you know what, here's here's one of those things. I never like to think about what the director was doing when he shoots a scene. And I never like to look at a costume and wonder what the costume designer was thinking when they designed it.
1: Well, I mean, so that's not unheard of in actual military uniforms. The Navy's previous to now, I don't know what they call them, but utilities or battle dress. I don't know what they call them. They're blue camo. If you look real close in there, the, um, the anchor and the USN symbol repeats all over that. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, it's way more subtle than the Star Trek uniform, but yeah, it's all over the place. So the, the camo is like a blue-gray type thing, and then the the US um, USN, and then the anchor is like a... It's real in the background, obviously not in your face because you never noticed it was there, although I'm sure... I don't know how many Navy uniforms you're looking at, but given that I work for the Navy, I see them all the time, so it's been a lot easier for me to pick that up, but Definitely not so much in your face as the Star Trek uniforms, but it's not unheard of in a in a military uniform, I guess, is what I'm saying.
0: No, and I and I can I can understand that. It just again, it for me, it's distracting. It takes me out. I'm not saying that that's the way everybody feels about it or should feel about it. It's just for me, when I start going, well, what were they thinking when they did that? You know, what was the what was the process there?
1: Yeah, I hadn't even noticed them. Now, you're talking about the Discovery uniform or the Enterprise's uniform in Discovery?
0: Well, I was talking about the Discovery uniform. The The Enterprise one doesn't have them.
1: Okay. So, you know, you mentioned that they had them in the Discovery uniform, but I'm going to be honest. I never even noticed
0: that at all. Oh, yeah. On the ribs, they have them in the metallic color.
1: Oh, Okay. Well, I, maybe I just don't like it, so I don't. I try not to look at that part.
0: <laughs> maybe that's it. It's just as simple as that, man. Um, of course, you notice the discovery has ditched that uniform too, though. In the later seasons, yeah. And that was, you know, not to not to get off track here. They first put them in the gray uniform that has a division color on it. And then I don't know what what happened, but like in between the end of that episode and the start of the next season, they're like, nah, you know what? Let's just go back to big, bold colors.
1: Yeah, and I actually like the uniforms they wear in the latest season. I mean, um, (laughs) you know what? I still can't get over the Command Red, even though it's been a thing since Next Generation. I do like the Command Gold, man.
0: Do you know why they did that?
1: Uh, I'm sure... um, Patrick Stewart did not look good in a yellow shirt. That was it. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it would be his color, man.
0: Yeah, no, that was exactly it. He did not look good in gold. So they're like, no, go to red.
1: <laughs> it's uh, Yeah, it, and, and then they had to, um, well, I guess it wasn't too hard to come up with an in-universe reason for it. We just felt like changing our uniforms.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, and that's simple to do because everybody everybody wore red in between the original series and the next generation. Just their undershirts change colors. That movie uniform, everybody wore maroon. So you can just go, yeah, we kept that for the command and then kind of brought back to the other colors for the other divisions.
1: But, I mean, again, even uh, going back to the real military, when I went to the Air Force, we wore those, um, the standard woodland camos um, that I'm sure most people are familiar with, the green and black and brown camo uniforms. Even in the short time I was in, we, we had changed our, at least camo uniform, and now they've changed again. Uh, so in the last 20 years, at least the air force has had three different camo uniforms. And actually, if you were deployed in the desert, you had a different one on top of that. You had a desert camo pattern. (laughs) So I guess changing uniforms is not super out of the ordinary.
0: I guess they're supposed to be quote-unquote uniforms, as long as everybody changes at one time. I don't, I don't know.
1: Yeah, man. Those transition periods are weird because you had people walking around in woodland camos and then half the people walking around the new stuff. It looked weird for a while until the, the final date where the command was like, okay, everybody's got to have it by this date.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's like back in the 90s when they were doing the things where they had the next-gen movies were out, Deep Space Nine was still on for a little bit, and Voyager had started. And they were kind of playing with like every, everybody had their own uniform, but that makes more sense because like, if you, if you get approached by a toy company and they say, Hey, I want to make a toy based off of this show, but not the others. Well, if you only have one uniform, there's no way to differentiate because you're going, Hey, no, buy the whole license, make something for everything. They're like, no, 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 just the one. Well, this way you can go. Okay. Well, here's what you got. You can do this look, but not the others.
1: On the other hand, if you had the same uniform for everything, you just got to change heads to get a bunch of new action figures.
0: Yeah. No, that's, I mean, there's there's an up and down to all of it. But you got to remember with Paramount slash CBS slash Viacom, all the companies they've been in the last 40 years, Star Trek was their only merchandiser. That's their only money maker when it comes to merchandise. So they really got to watch those like, hey, you know, we really got to be careful about what we allow, what we don't allow. All right, Chris. Well, I think... We've pretty much talked everything out here. Oh,
1: yeah. We spent an inordinate amount of time talking about uniforms. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Hey, it's good to get down into the details. You wouldn't be a Trekkie if you weren't into details, you know? (laughs) All right. Well, everybody out there, if uh, you got something to say, you want to share with us your thoughts, hit us up on Twitter at StrangeTrekShow, or you can email us at StrangenewTrek at gmail.com. We have a few more ways to get a hold of us. You can go over to Facebook and search for a strange new track, and you can find our group and our page. They're still relatively new, and those are probably the three best ways right at the moment. We don't have our website up yet. So, Chris, anything to add before we uh, we uh, call it quits? You want to tell us where we're going next week?
1: Yeah. So next week, join us as we talk about Pike doing undercover research in a futuristic fortification. His data is destroyed in a deadly infectious mutation. With the help of a mystic, he must fight in order to save his crew.
0: That sounds like an exciting episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, thank you for joining us. And uh, join us again next week when we're on to the next planet of the week.